Hi again, everyone. Um, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4 this morning, continuing our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, I guess this is kind of a confession. I was thinking um, it ties into where we're going. I'm actually going to pop into Mark chapter 10 a little bit first, but you can go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians 4. One of the big themes in Scripture is that we are always, it's something about the human heart that we want to put ourselves on a pedestal and pride, the wanting others to see us as better than them, wanting to believe that we're better than other people. That is such a pervasive and perpetual temptation. And uh, to be honest, you know, as I was um, sitting yesterday uh, beside my wife and Amy and a few people at the, at the soccer game, so we, our church sponsors a team, Nelson Covenant Cheetahs, not Cheetahs, Cheetahs, the fast animal. And um, I was stressed yesterday, and I'll tell you why, because to this point in the soccer season, the team hadn't lost, and they hadn't even really come close to losing. And that felt to me like that's a good reflection on our church. We're winners. We don't lose. And yet going into the final 10 minutes of the match, we were down 3-2. to two. And I was surprised how much insecurity and pride welled up in my own heart, <laughs> being like, there's a lot emotionally riding on this little kid's soccer game for me. And that's really not healthy. And so when I was praying, God, please just help them to tie the game. Literally, last play of the game, uh, one of the players did this amazing run, tied the game, and I you know, gave a sigh of relief. But it was a good, embodied um, reminder of just how important it, uh, it is for us so much of the time to feel like we're great, to feel like we're on top, to associate ourselves with winning teams, winning people. Um, winning movements. In Mark chapter 10, just as sort of like a little bit of a prelude to what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Right? That's a pretty bold way to start the conversation. And Jesus says, what's your request? And they say, when you come into your glory, when you come onto your throne, and they think that Jesus is here to install as the Messiah a worldly political kingdom, overthrow Rome, put Israel on top. They say, when, when that happens, we believe in you. We know you're going to get there. Can me and my brother sit at your right and your left hand? We want to be great. We want to be important. We know that you're number one, for sure. But could we have the places of honor? And Jesus says, I don't know if you know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink from? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to go through? And he's speaking about the crucifixion. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, no, for sure. Like, we totally can. And then this word gets out to the other disciples that James and John have kind of gone behind their back and are kind of angling for places of prominence. And it says in uh, verse 30, uh, uh, sorry, verse um, 41, when the other 10 disciples heard what James and John had asked. They were indignant. They were ticked at James and John. So Jesus called them together. There's this huddle, team huddle. And he says, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over others. Jesus is saying the pattern of this world is people want to become great so that they can boss other people around. 
from a place of smug superiority or maybe from insecurity. But that's why people are chasing power, is they want to use that as leverage over and against other people. But he says, it's not going to be this way with you. If you follow me, whoever wants to be first, whoever wants to be great, is going to be a slave to everyone else. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, or in some translations, slave. So Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, what you need to do is commit to a very different understanding of what leadership and power is for. And it's not for lifting and exalting yourself. It's leveraging the power that you have. Power is a good thing. It's tempting. You have to leverage your power, your influence, your skills, your abilities for the benefit of other people. So a leader will come underneath others and lift them up and make their life better, which went completely counter-cultural, both from a Gentile worldview, but even we see from a, at that time, Jewish worldview, which says, well, if we're God's favorite and we're blessed by God, then we should be in charge. And that means other people should be doing our bidding. And that theme, that core temptation to want to be in charge, to want to be seen as great, and specifically to go to Jesus and essentially say, Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. I want you to make my kingdom come. I want you to advance my priorities. I want you to exalt me. That is a, again, pervasive temptation in all of our hearts. And you see this unfolding in 1 Corinthians 4. Part of, not the only reason, but part of the reason why the Corinthians were so excited about coming to faith is because we see clues in the letter that they understood Christianity as a way for them to attain prominence. They were saturated in the culture that emphasized hierarchy and who's on top and who's in charge and who has status, who's seen as important, who's recognized as important. And they said, oh, when God redeems us, when God saves us, the life that God is saving us into is one where we are being exalted. And often we come to Jesus because we secretly believe, hope, that that is what the kingdom of God is about. It's about Jesus advancing our agenda. And we reverse that prayer. You know, your kingdom come, and we say, God, my kingdom come. Christianity, the Corinthians have to learn, and they're going to learn throughout this letter, is not a means to gain worldly status and wealth and power and privilege and prestige. It's actually a very costly way in which they're going to find blessing and eternal life and a, an abundant life and a rich life, but it's not going to have the trappings of what they would have thought of or assumed or hoped was a successful or prosperous life. One of the things that Paul does very early on is emphasize this over and over again. And Rick did a great job um, explaining and, and bringing out some nuance in the pride that's affecting the Corinthians' hearts. 
right? In verse uh, 6, it talks about them being puffed up. And Paul comes at them with that pivotal question, what do you have you did not receive, right? In these first seven verses, Paul is saying, listen, to be a leader, to be important, to be great in the kingdom is to be a servant. And so he wants them to know, if you are looking to us as leaders, as an example, we are servants, we're not celebrities. And in a sense, the power pyramid of the, of the kingdom is inverted, where those with the most power and privilege use it to bless those who don't have as much. But the Corinthians had been sucked into a cult. They've been raised in a culture. Again, no, there's no Christianity when these people are growing up. There's no youth group. They've been enculturated in a pagan culture that says one of the most important markers of a successful life is status. And to be seen of as important and celebrated as great and celebrated as superior to all these other people who are literally beneath you. Not just in terms of status, but even ontologically. You're a different grade as a human being. And so there's this pride, there's this temptation to self-glorification. And it's causing people in Corinth to divide over factions, to see certain people as um, deserving of more honor because they align with Team Paul versus Team Apollos versus Team Peter. And Paul in these first seven verses in chapter four is saying, no, you have to understand that the heart of what it means to be a Christian, it, it just doesn't mesh with pride because everything that you have has been a gift from God. And so the Christian life is one of profound humility. So when you move into verses eight and nine, Paul is going to do something here that is hard for us to read, just sort of if we're running through it quickly, because he starts off by saying, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign. And, and that without us. And he's referring to these other leaders in the church, Paul, without the apostles. Now, the first three chapters, he's made it very clear, this is not true. He says you're like spiritually mature, you're like children, and almost every commentator will say, I think what Paul is doing here is there's this righteous sarcasm where he's confronting them with their own self-perception to cause them to say, oh, is that really what we sound like? Um, he's saying, oh, yeah, you've got all you want. You've, you've, you've achieved it. You're rich. You're successful. You're reigning. You're on, you're on the top of, of, God's, of God's power pyramid. And, and you're certainly reigning without us. Like, we're, you've left us far behind. And he says, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you, right? He's saying, I'm just, you haven't really begun to reign. Christ hasn't returned, but I wish that that is the case. But again, he's saying, you have this inflated view of yourselves. And then he says in verse nine, because it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. He's using this really marked contrast. He's saying, hey, I mean, it's kind of weird, but I guess you guys are living the life and your perception of things is amazing and you're awesome and you're thriving in every way. And we apostles are just bringing up the rear. Like we're sort of the, the people that get dragged into the Colosseum at the very end and you're condemned to die. You know, they're not going to survive. And that would be jarring for the Corinthians because, again, in their mind, if God does have a power and a hierarchy of importance, 
I mean, you've got, you know, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But, like, when it comes to human beings, like, wouldn't the top of the pyramid be apostles? And sometimes we can get confused because the word disciple and apostle comes up and we under, don't always understand the difference. Anybody who calls himself a Christian is a disciple. Disciple means learner. So disciple is the generic term for someone who has decided to commit their life to Christ. But an apostle was a disciple, they were a follower of Jesus, but they were specially designated to have teaching authority in the early church and often being able to do miracles as a validation of that authority to establish churches and establish the right way, the right teaching and lifestyle that every church was supposed to pattern themselves off of going forward. So there's no doubt that the Corinthians saw the apostleship as like an office or a, or a title where you're like, wow, that person's super important because they're like, well, I'm a part of the Apollos apostle. Like we're like this too. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm part of Peter's thing. They understand. They think that that means, oh, that gives them status. And Paul says, that's weird because my experience as an apostle is life is brutal. I don't get any privilege. I don't get any perks. And I think that would have caused them to say, wait a second, what's going on here? Yeah, you're right. It, it, wouldn't spiritual success and status in the kingdom of God look like an increasing amount of influence and power and ease? Isn't that what the Corinthians would expect? And yet Paul is saying, that's not the pattern of my life. It's not the pattern of Peter's life. Not the pattern of Apollos' life. He says, we're treated like those who have been condemned to die. He says, we've been made a spectacle. The word there is theatron from where we get theater. Our lives are on display to people. And the, just like when Jesus was crucified and people walked by and they were like, oh, wow, look at this son of God. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Paul says, that's how we're on. We're on display like that to non-Christians. They look at us and they're like, what a bunch of losers going around talking about how Jesus is Lord, he's liberated the cosmos, and we're supposed to believe that this itinerant Jewish rabbi person was risen from the dead? Like, these guys are babbling nonsense. And they certainly can't compete with our sophists, with those who are intellectually and philosophically, clearly on another level, speak well, they know all the great writings. These are just, these are just, I mean, a lot of these apostles were just fishermen a number of years ago. They were nobodies. Paul says in verse 10, we are fools for Christ. We are weak. You're strong. You're honored. But we're dishonored. He says, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. And again, he's speaking of himself in the small circle of apostles. He says, we work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth. We've become garbage in the eyes of the world, right up to this very moment. And there's a heaviness here that Paul wants to explain. He wants the Corinthians to understand something. He wants them to understand that if they want to be great, they want to be prominent, they want to be famous, they want to have status within God's kingdom, 
that will come at a tremendous cost. And part of the lesson here for everybody in this room, but especially for pastors, people who are called the pastoral ministry, Rick and I, and other leaders, and anybody who occupies those places of informal leadership as a parent or a grandparent or at work, there is a burden to leadership in the kingdom of God. Part of the reason why people in the world chase leadership in places of prominence is because what they often want is to be in a position where they get to tell other people what to do and those people get to make their life easier. That's why positions of power are so sought after because they have all the privilege. But Jesus not only teaches his disciples and those 12 apostles, but they in turn have to teach the earliest group of Christians those lessons in new ways. It's an awesome thing to want to be great. It's an awesome thing to be called leadership in the kingdom of God. It's an awesome thing to want to be seen by other Christians and by God as a faithful and prominent person. But that's going to come at a cost. And he says, I can just point to us as apostles. We bear a burden in our bodies, psychologically, emotionally, relationally, that no one else has to bear. And leadership is lonely. Um, the percentage of pastors who felt like they had no significant person in their life to help carry their burdens is, uh, went, uh, sorry, the amount of pastors who said they had at least one person in their life um, I'm going to ballpark the stats here because I didn't write it down, but it just came to mind because I was reading it this week, is before the pandemic was about, about a third. So about a third of pastors before the pandemic said, I have one person that I feel like I can confide in. After the pandemic, it went down to like 18%. It's now edging up around a quarter. Pastoral leadership is lonely. Being a leader is lonely because there are things that you have to take responsibility for. There are burdens that you have to absorb that no one else is going to absorb. And that's not to say to pity your pastor or to pity other leaders, but it's Paul's warning the Corinthians that to the extent you want to be great and be used of God powerfully, you are going to suffer. You're going to suffer. And part of an application here for me, and I wrote it down, and, and an application for all of us is, will I be faithful in whatever God has called me to, whether it's formal leadership or informal, will I be faithful even when it becomes really, really hard? And not just hard, but will I be faithful to Jesus when it becomes unpopular? Because that's what Paul's talking about too. He's talking about how leadership and following through on what God has called him to do has been difficult. But he also says, I've been put on display. Like, um, I've been pulled out into public for ridicule. I've been called a loser for my faith. I've been rejected by friends who are like, oh, you go to church? You're a part of youth group? You believe that stuff? I've been demeaned. I've been called 
hateful, homophobic, transphobic, uh, misogynistic. I've been slandered publicly simply because I'm trying to follow Jesus faithfully. And Paul says, I continue on. He says, we endure it. He says, we're persecuted, but we endure it. In verse 12, even when we're slandered, I answer kindly. Because other people look at us like the scum of the earth right up to this moment. And so he's saying to the Corinthians, you guys are clamoring to be seen as great and important and puffed up and superior because you think that that's what following Jesus is supposed to look like? Like you're, you're climbing this ladder of success in the world's eyes? No, it's, it's going to look really different. It's going to look really different. And part of it there is a call to all of us to say we are moving into an age where it's not going to be celebrated that you go to church, that you claim faith. And people are going to be not just being like, well, you've got your truth, I have my truth, live and let live. You're going to feel an increased amount of animosity from people. There's going to be increased resistance to anybody. They don't even want to have the conversation. They hear that you're a Christian or that you take your faith seriously, and it's just going to be shutting the door shutting the opportunity, uh, giving the cold shoulder, maybe even leading into you and presuming all kinds of malicious things about you, bad faith, because you invoke the name of Jesus. And when that happens, remember how Paul deals with it. We endure, we answer kindly, we don't retaliate, but we endure, we keep going, we stay faithful. And that's going to be challenging for some of us. Some of us who are moving into junior high, some of us who are moving into the first stage of life, moving into career, moving into retirement, moving into new social circles. It's a challenging thing. But Paul wants the Corinthians to know, if you think that following Jesus is just going to automatically make your life better and better and better and accrue more and more advantages, and that's all that's, all that's going to happen, you, you need to be set right. He says, I'm warning this, not to shame you, but I want to warn you. As dear children, even if you have 10,000 um, guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father, father through the gospel. He's, he has this deep relational, like leaders care about people. Again, Christian leaders don't see people as a means to an end. He says, I care about you like children and like a good father who's willing to sacrifice so that his children can benefit. He's not saying... Hey, you're my kid. You do what I say. I bark the order. I say, jump. You ask how high. I'm in charge here. I'm the, he's saying, no, I'm coming to you. And then look what he says. He says, um, I urge you to imitate me. And for this reason, I send you Timothy, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. Timothy was a younger uh, mentee of Paul. And Paul, in this mirror of John 3.16, says, I, as the Father, love you so much. I'm sending my son in the faith, Timothy, on a dangerous expedition to come and see you and to show you my way. Of, I'm willing to give up someone who's super important to me so that you can have life. I'm not walking away from you despite all this mess. I care about you like a father cares about his child and his children. And he says, I want you to imitate me. I'm sending you Timothy so that he can remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. Which agrees with what I teach everywhere 
in every church. Now, this is really, really important. And you should underline it. You should go back and reflect on it. Why is Paul sending Timothy? Why does he say he's sending Timothy? What has he told Timothy to do? Remind them of what? Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus. Christianity is a way of life in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you have some ideas, you have beliefs, uh, you might even have some good, like, right doctrine, you have some teachings sorted out, but your lives aren't aligned with those things. And he's like, I'm sending Timothy to get you back on track. And I know some of us grew up or our parents did, or what we were handed was a faith where it was like, well, Christianity is basically don't do bad things and memorize a bunch of like right teachings that the church says is the right answers. So you have like these right beliefs and you try and avoid like these big sins and then you just kind of live your life. And that would have broken Paul's heart for people to have that kind of a vision of what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a way of life where I'm now learning how do I live my whole life Everything from my finances to my sexuality to how I understand what it means to show up for work, how I recreate, um, what I eat, what I drink, what I prioritize, my values, like all of it, slowly over time, I'm learning how to live in Christ Jesus, live in a way that honors God and blesses other people. Paul says, I don't want you as a church just to know stuff. You have such dysfunction because you're not living the way of Jesus. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I weren't coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So what do you prefer? Do you want me to come with you, come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? This is a, a, a good example of a passage where you don't want to take something out of context. Now, charismatics will often just take verse 20 out of context and say, yeah, the kingdom of God isn't about talk, it's about power. And that power gets conflated with signs and miracles of the Spirit, and that's how you know the kingdom of God is breaking forth. Now, again, Paul's going to talk about sign gifts and miracle gifts later on in Corinthians. We're going to talk about that. But I want you to understand where that's coming from based on what he has just said, which is, the Corinthians are all about sophistry and saying the right things and looking the part and projecting and performing an image that causes others to say, wow, that person's so spiritual. Let's follow them. Let's be part of their um, Christian tribe. And he says, no, it's about a way of life in Christ Jesus. And he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And I think the New Living Translation gets this really, really well. It says, the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It's living by God's power. And again, living by God's power fundamentally for Paul, and you see this in the letters, is about living righteously and, and in a way that's holy, in a way that's being filled with the fruit of the Spirit. It's not living into a worldly agenda where I'm going through my day and saying, how do I 
maximize and uh, maximize my own potential, elevate myself over and above other people, move into a place of prominence, it's saying, how do I serve God today? Even if that puts me underneath other people, even if that's going to make other people literally look down on me or dismiss me. Paul says, I'm going to come to this church because I know people are talking, they're talking smack, right? I, I used to be a big smack talker. Before I became a Christian, especially in, in um, sports, I, I was not very gracious. It was definitely not anything approximating <laughs> righteous. I was very boastful in my talk. But part of the interesting challenge that I had to face is that, you know, my, I guess there's a saying, you know, your, I guess you'd say my mouth was writing checks that my body couldn't cash, right? So I could talk to talk, I could talk big, but I wasn't really that great. I was kind of like, okay. And so over time I got humbled and humiliated because I couldn't, I couldn't walk the talk. And Paul is saying here, you guys know how to talk to talk. You study all the great sophists and the people who've got the language, right? Maybe you've been a part of a church where people like know their scripture. They know doctrine, these big fancy Bible words. They know how to project spiritual authority. They know how to project a sense of maturity. But as you get to know them, you're like, these people's lives are super messed up. They're emotionally mature. They're actually spiritually mature. And some of it is just... Um, it's not a fault of their own. They were raised in a culture where it was like, what gets validated is say the right words. Again, the beliefs don't do really bad things. And then that's what it means to be a strong Christian. Instead of saying, no, it's about a way of life in Christ Jesus. It's a humility. And it's a commitment to saying, I'm going to understand that pride is always eating at the edges of my heart. There's always a part of me where I'm going to Jesus on some level and saying, Jesus, how about you do whatever I want? How about you do whatever I ask? I know I don't ask this all the time, but look at the run I've had, Jesus. Last few years, pretty, pretty good. I'm kind of calling in my, 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 my chips here. Like, no, it's always about saying, God, your kingdom come. And it's always about wanting the life of God to be born in us. When I think about this passage, this is what I'm committed to thinking and praying through and processing in my life, and I want to encourage you to do it as well. Again, if you're in a position of leadership, formal or informal, understand that you have been given a trust. You've been given power and authority, but it's not to exalt yourself. Leaders are servants. They're not celebrities. Leadership in general if you feel like your life has become more difficult because of taking on leadership, you're probably doing it right. And if you feel like you are being poured out for the sake of other people, you're, you're doing it right. And the second thing is to really ask ourselves, do I understand that what Christianity is, is not just talk, not just performative, but it's actually committing to a way of life in Christ Jesus? And do I, where might God be challenging me to think about that next step that I have to move in that direction? Because many, many people 
we're told that Christianity is about certain beliefs, avoid certain bad behaviors, hit the high stuff, go to church, give some money to the church, uh, you know, do some devotions. But we weren't, I think there's a lot of people that weren't invited into walking with God. And that's what Paul wants for the Corinthians. Again, he sees that as the root issue underneath all the other issues. He's not starting these first four chapters and saying, stop committing adultery, stop doing this, stop suing each other, uh, put away the sexual immorality. He sees all of that as an outgrowth of not realizing that they need to learn to walk in a certain way, to live in a certain way comprehensively. So may that be a challenge to us? And may it cause us again to humbly go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't exactly understand what this means for my life, but will you help me? Let's pray.